Hi, Mary. How are you doing? It's been a bit of a strange couple of weeks, I guess, hasn't it? Yeah, no two ways about it, really. It's a very strange couple of weeks. A lot of change, clearly a big historical moment in all of our lives. And I'm sure lots of people were paying their respects yesterday. We're releasing this on Tuesday, the 20th of September. Hope everyone is dealing okay with, well, the events that we've been through in the last couple of weeks and actually everything that's going on at the moment. This is, of course, the end of summer and back to school episode. It's the start of our fourth season now of Investment Uncut. So it feels like a slightly strange circumstance to be coming back to, but we did want to get going when we could. So Dan, should we just reflect on the summer before the last couple of weeks first? Because it feels like it ages since we've caught up like this. Yeah, let's do that. Well said, Mary. Yeah. So what were the top three things that you got up to over the summer that you want to highlight? Top three things. So the main theme of my summer is that I didn't go away on a big summer holiday, but I guess it was a pretty good summer to be at home. We were pretty lucky with the weather, weren't we? So still managed to get a bit of colour, managed to sit out in the garden, got new deck chairs. I'm sure I talked about that at some point early in the summer. You did remember that. (laughs) The excitement that is my life. Still very solidly in wedding season. So I think we had four or five this year which was lovely as always. Use that as a bit of an excuse to travel a bit around the country, which was nice. So weekends in places like Devon and other places like that, which was lovely. And at the start of the so that was my number two theme of, or top three things. Third one, I suppose, is I did manage to have a couple of small breaks early in the summer. So weekends away, places like San Sebastian and Lisbon and Porto stand out. And Lisbon, we went there for a festival, saw Muse, which was pretty cool. So bits and bobs, no sort of big bang trip, but a nice summer nonetheless. How about you, Dan? Yeah, I remember you went early with some of those little weekends away to Lisbon thing. That's a great town, isn't it? Must have been nice. Yeah, really nice. Yeah, so we were down in France, spent a lot of time jumping into the River Charente there is kind of like central to where we go. And a lot of time jumping into that with little Leo now. He's nearly two, so he was really loving life, jumping into the river and a little life jacket. And it was very cute. He just didn't want to stop jumping in. <laughs> it was really, really sweet. So that was nice. And of course, being France, there's a little bit of food on offer. So had to have the odd croissant, I would admit to. I do think the bakers in France just don't capture the value they create. A good croissant is a really special thing and they give away, I mean, they don't really charge the correct value, I always think, for that. So that was that. And then on the work front, I wrote a little paper with Steve Webb, people might have seen about consolidating your DC pensions, actually made it into the national press, the FT and the Times and Telegraph. Daily Mail all covered it, which was actually really nice. I even had some colleagues joking, or maybe they were serious, that it was being discussed in pub beer gardens or the merits of whether you should because a lot of your pensions or not. So I'm glad to have put something out there that's useful. Absolutely. We'll obviously link to that in the show notes. I suppose the other thing, Dan, that we did, we couldn't quite stay away from podcasts, could we? Because we were guests on our sister podcast, Insurance Uncut, over the summer. So we can link to that one too. Yeah, that was nice. It was nice to get a chance to talk about our own views about investing and set out a few things there. So that was good. Yeah, it was really nice. Although a little bit pressure to be the expert. We don't really have to know anything on this one, do we? We just ask the questions. But anyway. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. What can people expect from this season? This is season four, as I said, that we're kicking off now. A couple of changes from previous seasons. 
Yeah, so we talked about this, haven't we? So we were really pleased with the guests we managed to get towards the end of last season. We really did manage to rack up some good ones. Want to keep the quality really high. So what we've decided to do is go for a fortnightly schedule so we can put a bit more time and effort into each of the episodes, hopefully keep them really good, spend a bit more time sort of publicizing it, promoting it on social media and that sort of thing. Give ourselves a little bit more breathing space to work through it. So that's probably the main difference, I think, isn't it? So we're coming at you every two weeks, get a little bit more time to listen to each episode and you'll have a slightly shorter backlog if you have a bit of a few weeks off from listening. That's the main thing. Absolutely. So yeah, similar length episodes, 30, 40, that sort of length in terms of hopefully still fitting within your commute when you do choose to commute. But yeah, not too much difference. So hopefully still works for everyone. But this episode is actually slightly different, isn't it? So having just described the usual structure, this is a slightly different episode. We are doing an episode today on inflation. We did think about doing an episode on inflation a good few months ago, didn't we? And the thing we try and do with this podcast, which hopefully people have recognised, is either find a different angle or talk about something that not everyone's talking about, because there are so many thousands of podcasts talking about investment stuff all the time. And I think probably fair to say a few months ago, there was so much out there about inflation and what the trend was and what it wasn't and where it had gone and where it might go to next. We weren't sure we particularly had a different angle or a different edge to to talk about. Clearly, the theme did not go away. So we sort of challenged ourselves, I suppose, to try and think about what would be interesting to hear about inflation. And that's where we got to with today's episode. Yeah, and this is what we've come up with. I suppose our ambition here was to help listeners think better and more well-roundedly. Is that a word about inflation? I don't know if it's a word. It works though, doesn't it? <laughs> I'll take it, yeah. I mean, look, it's a big theme at the moment, but as Mary said, what hasn't been said about it, it's, it's difficult. So anyway, we've tried to get in touch with some really key colleagues on it. So we've got three segments coming up. We're starting off with Heidi Allen, who's talking about the financial well-being perspective, talking about some of her insights from her work with the effect this is going to have on individuals. Then we're chatting to Steve Webb from the political side, sort of evaluating, analysing some of the announcements that's come from the new prime minister, what they definitely are doing, what they might do, and some of his view on that. Finally, rounding up with colleague John Forsyth, who's running through some of the various ways that inflation makes its way into actuarial work, little things that people ought to be aware of. Some things might be going under the radar. Absolutely. And then we'll do a bit of a wrap at the end with some of the sort of maybe more specifically investment angles and just trying to pull it, pull it all together and give it a continuous sort of thread through all of the messages. But before we sort of, I guess, hand into the Heidi segment, thought it was worth just setting the scene in terms of where we've actually got to at the time of recording. Obviously, data is changing quite a lot at the moment. So latest figures we've got sort of around July time, CPI just above 10%. Expectations for that to be around a similar sort of level when we get the August figures out. Inflation, I think, is fairly well publicised being highest in the G7. So we are soaring ahead of many of our neighbouring countries. And I suppose the inflation is volatile in different countries at different points in time. It's not always a problem. It's not always a concern. What I suppose is a bit more of a concern for the UK versus some of those other countries is the expectation of how long inflation will last. Obviously, that has knock-on impacts the way that we all live our lives and how quickly we can get through this. And that's been come through in some of the economic forecasts, hasn't it? Sort of in US and Europe, Europe, I think you've seen a real discrete peak in the inflation forecast, whereas in the UK, that's always been a bit more of a rounded peak really going back into well into the later half of this year and into next year as well. And there's obviously been some quite out there forecasts as well for that. So that shape of inflation in the UK is a bit special. And actually, it's interesting because despite the fact that that shape looks potentially like inflation is more prolonged in the UK, the other thing that we've seen continuously this year is a surprise versus what has been positioned. I think we've touched on this in some of our episodes in the early part of the summer where 
think I was sort of saying, Andrew Bailey, Bank of England, his job is to control inflation. So his messaging will be that inflation will fall and the market often will follow roughly what he's saying. I think it's continuously over the summer, the market has pushed out maybe slightly further than he's been saying, but also continuously through the summer, he's been admitting that it might be here for to last for longer than previously positioned. So continuous market surprise, clearly that's impacting investment markets. We'll come back to that a bit later on. And I think it probably doesn't give people loads of confidence in what might happen next and whether the market is pricing in what's going to happen next properly. Exactly. And where that all leaves us, and this is a theme that's hopefully going to come through, is that we're just in an environment that almost no one has really operated in during their careers. You know, inflation has been such a low constant almost for so, so long. We're starting to realize all these things that are really causing issues or breaking because it's shot up so high. And we'll hopefully work through some of those over the course of the episode. Absolutely. Should we head to it? Brilliant. Let's do it. So talking about inflation, our first port of call, first person we wanted to talk to was the head of our of LCP's financial well-being practice. And that's our colleague, Heidi Allen. Heidi, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me back. Hi, Heidi. Well, this isn't your first time on the show, but I understand there's more than one thing we should know about you that won't appear on your CV. So why don't you give the listeners another thing that we should know about you? It's quite a nice thing, actually. I absolutely love photography. So I enjoy nothing more than going for a walk, getting some fresh air and taking pictures. That's how I relax and I recharge my batteries. Nice. So what sort of things have you been photographing recently? Typically landscapes, sunsets, animals, anything with water, anything from a different perspective. So you'll quite often find me laying on the ground somewhere taking a photograph from a different perspective. I just like looking at things differently. Are you Instagram for these or are you just for your own collection sort of thing? For my own collection, I have published a few on Instagram. Excellent. Cool. All right. Well, moving on to the subject at hand then, obviously, we're talking about inflation. I mean, I guess lots has been written about this potentially being one of the biggest squeezes on household living standards here in the UK for an awfully long time, maybe 100 years. Obviously, the words cost of living crisis have been used a lot, talking about potentially a generational challenge to household solvency. Can you maybe put the current situation into a bit of context or help us sort of understand it through some of the insights that you have in your work? Yeah, absolutely. So as you know, I do a lot of research into employee well-being. And the last study that I undertook was towards the end of last year. And that was actually quite a challenge for me as the author of that research, because what I saw was a significant increase in people saying that they'd suffer with stress and anxiety, actually up by about 15%. So three in four people saying they'd been impacted, which was hugely significant. I also saw a really big increase in people who were regularly borrowing to meet basic financial needs and a decrease in people's rainy day savings. So that's that buffer that enables them to be able to cope with fluctuations in spending and to be able to rise out increases in prices. It's worth pointing out that that was before the cost of living squeeze really started to take hold as well. I was going to say, you're saying that was last year? That was last October, November time when that research was undertaken. So I've got to confess, I'm in the processes of doing this year's research and working on the questions. And I've got to be honest, I am quite anxious about what this next piece of research is really going to show, because we would have had sort of nine or 10 months of all of these cost of living impacts. And it's really interesting as well, because before now, the most common question that I used to get asked was, surely financial worries are just an issue for the youngsters or the lower paid? 
But actually, that really is not the case. These financial challenges and concerns are being felt right across the board, across all ages and all salary levels as well. You mentioned, Heidi, that you're currently putting together the questions for the next round of research. What are the sort of new questions that you've got on your mind for this time round? I'm going to try and focus on people's resilience. I'm going to try and focus on what areas of support they need, what role does the organisation play and just how people are feeling generally and the impact that some of these things that we've had over the last few years have really had on people. So the pandemic, the change in focus, even things to do with people not using cash as much as using technology to pay, that gives us a very different psychological contract with our finances than what some of us had growing up where we didn't have that that immediacy when it came to our spending patterns and behaviours. All of these things have had an impact. And really, I want to change the lens and try and future gaze as well and look at how people are feeling about their future finances and what areas they're comfortable with and what areas they're really concerned about in terms of going forward. Do you think some of this is still being underappreciated? I mean, obviously, it's been covered a lot in the press, but I suppose there's a big difference between reading press stories and then actually reading answers of interviews with real people who are really, really struggling. So do you feel it's still the scale of this challenge moment we're in is still being a bit underappreciated? Absolutely, yeah. And One of the biggest things I talk about, and we can never underestimate the power of talking and the power of communicating. And I think we're still at a stage where the stigma around poor financial health is still weighing heavy on people's minds. And when we say things like talking about money and it's okay to talk and it's good to talk, that's great. But actually, in reality, people are still really nervous to do that because there is still an underlying element of, am I going to be judged? Are people going to think I'm really bad with money? Have I made bad choices? But actually, the reality is, often for so many people, it's not through bad choices, bad behaviours and poor behaviours that have led people to be in a difficult situation. If the last few years has taught us anything, it's to expect the unexpected. And it's that lack of financial resilience, the lack of buffer in your everyday budget and the lack of short and medium term savings that people have had to eat into to be able to carry them forward. And I think that's one of the reasons why people are feeling really uncomfortable, really vulnerable and really anxious because they haven't got that safety net to be able to dip into, to be able to weather this storm, this hopefully short-term storm. And I suppose, Heidi, the comments around resilience and having that rainy day fund is focused on the individual having the resilience. Could you maybe just talk very briefly about the roles that the organisation you mentioned earlier, and I suppose also the government, just given what we've been through in the last couple of years and what's sort of being announced at the moment in terms of Liz Truss's new government? Absolutely. I think there's a lot of challenges going forward. And I think from an organisation, from an employer's perspective, I think there is still a nervousness around where does the line fall? Where's that grey line between personal responsibility and corporate responsibility? And I think for a lot of people, it's around having options. So, for example, having financial education available in the workplace to help people build their knowledge, their understanding and build those good behaviours. It's about having the mechanisms through employee benefits platforms and employee benefits offerings to enable people to save. So, yes, 
pensions is there and it's firmly part of that employee benefits remit and it's expected for that long-term future savings. But actually, what about the midterm savings and what about the short-term savings? And I'm having more and more conversations with organisations really looking at what is it they can be doing to help and support in terms of the discount schemes that are available, the savings opportunities, the education, providing flexibility. And I think from a government perspective, I think I don't envy Liz Truss or whoever was going to come and take that role on next. I think there are so many things that are on the agenda, so many unknowns for the future. And I think, unfortunately, they're kind of between a rock and a hard place in respect of what needs to be done. Where do you focus your attention? Do you focus on utilities? Do you focus on all manner of different areas that they need to be addressing? But I think one thing is really clear. Together, individuals, companies, and the government really need to think about the stability and the resilience of the country, of businesses across the UK and globally, and also the individuals themselves. We need to build that resilience. Give us an insight of how some of those conversations with organisations and companies go. Like you said, it sounds like companies are a little bit, understandably, maybe wary of the ground there. Is that shifting a little bit, you think? Is it changing or how's that being received? I think a lot of organisations are thinking about it from the perspective of what do we do? What products or services do we need to put in place? But actually, most companies have already got a wealth of support available already and also have a wealth of products and services aimed to support financial health in their existing benefits packages already. And most of the conversations I'm having are around, as I say, education and savings. But also one thing that I'm saying when I'm talking to organisations is actually it's not necessarily about putting another benefit in place or putting something else within the employee benefits package. For a lot of companies, what they've got in place already is actually largely underutilised, whether that is apps and services and products aren't joined up. So it's not easy for employees to be able to access that help and support. Or for a lot of people, it's actually not knowing what's available, not knowing how to get access and not knowing when certain things can help and support them. So again, largely comes back to education and communication. Thinking, Heidi, of the more immediate crisis, what are the avenues of help and how does one go about supporting those avenues of help? In the interest of time, thinking about sort of one core area in particular, employee discount schemes. Now, many companies have got these available through their flex benefits platform. Some have them as standalone offerings, as separate from their employee benefits. But actually, they're a really great example of something that people can use today, here and now that can really make a difference to their financial health. Now, some platforms, it's fair to say, are a little clunky and can make that experience a slightly more complicated one for them to follow. But that said, there are a lot of organisations that do this brilliantly and the ability for people to be able to access discounts, whether that is 
days out through school holidays, weekends, whether that's through utilities, whether that's through normal retail spending. We're starting to get into the run up to Christmas now where people are going to be thinking about gifts and presents for family and loved ones actually utilising some of these fantastic discounts that are available through these benefit platforms actually will mean people will be able to really make a difference and really be able to afford some of those things. So yeah, I'd say employee discount schemes largely undervalued. That's really interesting. So you're sort of saying that the overall situation is probably still being underappreciated, potentially could be worse than it's being portrayed because of the lack of resilience that a lot of the households had on average going into this. But the sort of private sector, corporate sector is arguably another pillar alongside the government, potentially another pillar of support this time around that hasn't maybe is being a little bit. Absolutely. Great. Very clear. Heidi, that's been great. Thank you so much for your time. No problem. You're welcome. Nice to talk to you. Thanks, Heidi. probably clear that a large dimension of this inflation question is sort of political and comes down to what the government's doing, the support the government's providing, what sort of plans the government has. So in order to discuss that, we wanted to get straight on the phone to our colleague, partner, Steve Webb, to discuss all that and help listeners think through all those implications. Steve, welcome. Thanks very much, Dan. Nice to be back. Steve, welcome back. As you've just hinted at, you've been on the show before. Wondered if just to start us off, you could let us know anything major you've been up to over the summer. Well, I suppose the most unusual thing was a rare guest appearance on Woman's Hour, not a show I'm on regularly. (laughs) But we've just launched our Mothers Missing Millions campaign, which is another state pension error that the government admitted to over the summer. So in July, DWP published their annual report and they came up with something they haven't admitted to before, which is that you get protection for your state pension for time at home with children. It's, It's complicated, but that's the basic idea. And they admitted that they've finally been checking records and they found mothers who simply didn't have that on their NI records and women who are not getting enough pension or in some cases not getting pension at all. So until the government fixes this problem, we've put a page on our LCP website to help people self-diagnose and fix it for themselves. And we'll absolutely link to that in the show notes. Steve, really intrigued, though, about your time on Women's Hour. What was the sort of most unexpected aspect of doing that? You've clearly done a lot of speaking in various sort of guises before. Well, slightly unexpected was that I was following a very eminent previous speaker, which was Baroness Hale, who was in charge of the Supreme Court, and they had to decide on the prorogation decision. She was talking about a pretty contentious issue, which was Roe versus Wade in the judgment in the state. So that was quite a weighty topic to follow. But it turned out Baroness Hale had also got a state pension story to tell, which linked rather unusually into my contribution. So you never quite know what's going to be thrown at you. No, absolutely. Back to the sort of question at hand, I suppose, Steve. And I guess trying to make sense of where we are right now. So we've obviously got a new prime minister, a bunch of support packages been sort of announced and trailed so far. Some more announcements, I think, to come this week. How would you sort of help listeners think through what the government's doing here? and What's your sort of take on it broadly? I think at one level, the scale of what's proposed is absolutely vast bigger than furlough, all those kind of parallels we've seen. We've yet to see the exact figures. I mean, it is pretty astonishing that the Prime Minister, for understandable reasons, announced a monumental package with no numbers attached. And I'm not convinced we'll even get them when the Chancellor stands up, assuming it's this week, because the OBR won't have had time to crunch all the numbers. So we are in a bit of a black hole when we're dealing with such vast sums of money. I think the big picture is 
it appears that for households, they've drawn the sting of what would otherwise have happened. So the big hike in the energy price cap won't go ahead. The energy price cap will go up to around two and a half thousand, which is an increase of over £500. But because the government's already promised us all £400 over the next six months, that'll wipe out most of it on average. I think it's worth saying just on that point, if you were a bigger household, you still only get the 400 quid back even though your energy bill will have risen by more because the cap is an average figure for an average household. If you spend more, your bill will go up more, but the compensation package doesn't vary according to size of household. So larger households will feel a squeeze. And of course, even this is still an awful lot more than it was a year ago. Yes, the next round of increases probably won't happen, but people are still feeling the squeeze from the last lot. And bear in mind on inflation, benefits and pensions went up 3% in April. So until the next rise, as it were, that's an awful squeeze. It's not a problem solved, that's for sure. No. And I suppose you've drawn out the example of households of different sizes. I suppose the other very key element that's sort of plastered all over the news at the moment is household income of different levels. And I wonder if you could just help us understand, perhaps for obvious reasons, but please explain, this is a broad brush approach and it isn't income tested is that just because it's the quickest way of getting something in place and something's better than nothing or or do you think there's more to that i think had it been something that was literally only affecting the very poorest of people we have a mechanism for helping poor people and it's called the benefit system but i think it's pretty clear that a hike of hundreds of pounds a month was something that someone on average earnings was going to struggle with so when you're suddenly thinking that probably only really top earners you don't want to help and you're trying to cover, I don't know, 70, 80% of the population or more, then frankly, a universal approach starts to look cleaner and simpler. And I mean, bear in mind, we're talking here about households as the business side of all of this perhaps we'll come on to. But just on households, as you say, Mary, again, the curse of averages. ONS have now started publishing figures for inflation rates by income. And of course, if you're, for example, an elderly pensioner who stays at home a lot of the time with the energy on, the heating on, your inflation rate is more than the 10% or so that we've seen so far. So again, even average compensation doesn't really get you there. And what about that point on businesses then, Steve? Where are we on that? I think that's a real concern. I mean, because of the limbo we've been in over the summer with no effective functioning government, businesses have already closed. There's no doubt about that. They've just looked at, they've got a quote for a new energy bill, decided they're simply not viable and have shut. I think some have waited to see what the government comes up with. And there's some suggestion of a six-month freeze for businesses. But six months is kind of limping, really, till the spring, till Easter. And then maybe we need another tens of billions to protect businesses or selected energy-intensive businesses, maybe, small businesses, maybe. You can just imagine a kind of where it's been a universal approach for households and perhaps for businesses for six months. After that, I would expect something targeted. It could be energy intensive industries, could be business rates relief. It'll be much more like that, I suspect, because they just can't pay everybody's bills forever. Yeah, you mean read things in the paper about sort of local pubs, nurseries sort of thing. I mean, it feels like they're still maybe going a little bit underappreciated, how bad that could be, I guess. Absolutely. And, and of course, the knock on effect then is, you know, people lose their jobs, they don't have then spending power in the economy that drags us into recession, and then the tax revenues fall. And so it's not just the immediate fiscal hit of the rescue packages, it's what high energy bills could do to the economy as well. Because of course, just quickly, the jobs picture, actually, there's some jobs data out, I think this morning, wasn't there, recording this on the 13th, the jobs picture is still pretty strong, actually, in the UK, which is sort of, I mean, good, at least people have got jobs when we're coming into a difficult situation. But it's like you said, the effect of the inflation has gone so far through the workforce, 
that is not necessarily a protection, but it's obviously a better situation that people are in jobs than having a lot of people out of jobs because businesses are closing. I think jobs has been almost the miracle of the last couple of years. I mean, when COVID hit and lockdown and all the rest of it, it would have seemed incredible that we wouldn't have had hundreds of thousands more people unemployed. And clearly furlough played a big part in that. But the jobs market has been remarkably robust. I do just wonder if it can cope with another slowdown on top of everything else. So I'd be surprised if it remains quite as rosy as it has. Steve, you mentioned tax a couple of sentences ago. Could you maybe just give us an update and also your thoughts on impact of what's been announced? Well, we have a very strange mix, don't we? We have an economic argument that we heard, I think, probably in the 1980s, which was the kind of you cut taxes, you boost the economy, and that gives you extra tax revenue. And it's sort of a bit of a free lunch is the theory. I mean, it never quite seems to work like that. But that was a very distinct message from Liz Trust. So there will have to be reversal of planned increases. So the corporation tax rise will now not go ahead. And that's a a multi-billion hit to the public finances. The national insurance rise for the NHS. At first, the suggestion that it wouldn't happen. Now there's some suggestion it might happen, but go to social care. So that's a bit fuzzy, to be honest. But there's been talk of being a tax cutter. And I think Liz Trust will want to do something that demonstrates she is a tax cutter, which is beyond not increasing business taxes. So whether there'll be something symbolic, penny off income tax or something like that, which Rishi Sunak had already announced, a penny off income tax. So, I mean, the first OBR numbers are just going to be eye-watering because we're going to have massive spending, some of it long-term, funding of not increasing corporation tax. I mean, it'll be off the scale compared with things we've seen before. Of course, we sort of said this over COVID with the furlough and things like that. So it's really kind of stunning that it's coming so soon on the heels of that. And some of it's long term, which governments don't really care about. I mean, although they care in the sense it goes on the already enormous national debt and has to be serviced. So we see the debt servicing cost in the annual budgets. And obviously that will go up as inflation goes up. It'll go up as public debt goes up. But they tend not to care too much about ladling hundreds of billions onto the public debt just because it's kind of some our grandchildren will pay type thing. But what they care about is this year and next year's and the year after, the, the fiscal planning horizon. And I think on that, those numbers will look pretty brutal because the corporation tax, that's current time horizon. So we'll see a multi-billion pound deterioration in the short term as well. Steve, just wondering, something's been in the back of my mind in relation to both, I suppose, the change of government, but also the inflationary, they're very interlinked, particularly in this conversation. Just about seasonal timing. So this is clearly not the normal time of year for us to have a new person leading the country. And clearly when we're thinking about inflation, particularly that's driven by energy costs, it's the winter that we're the most concerned about. I don't know whether there's anything in that or it just is an observation of a fact. I don't know if it makes Liz's job harder or not. I mean, I guess the big seasonal issue we've had this year is the dislocation between the inflation figure we use, which is the year to September and the time when pensions and benefits and many wages go up, which is April. And normally that just doesn't really matter. It's a percent or two this year, percent or two next year, it all comes out in the wash. But the difference of about 6% between inflation in April was around 9%, if I remember rightly, and inflate benefits went up 3 That really matters. And had the price cap not been capped, as it were, not been limited, we'd have had another year of that because we'd have had inflation could have been 15% by next April and benefits going up by 10. So that hasn't mattered in the past. It could have mattered hugely this year. So I think at least that's been reduced by the cap. The winter impact is less in a world where we smooth our bills over 12 months of equal direct debits. If I can use this phrase, for the middle classes, it probably doesn't matter too much in the sense that in the summer you should be paying more. Where it really matters is prepayment meters. 
if you pay day by day for your electricity and gas and your consumption goes up in the winter and you haven't got the money, you self-disconnect. In my spare time, I do debt advice and I meet people in fuel poverty. And it's just horrific when you see people who've got into financial difficulty, so they get put onto prepayment meters. And then there are no government figures for the number of disconnections because they don't disconnect people anymore. They put them on prepayment meters and make them disconnect themselves. What do you do if you've got a fridge full of food and they turn your power off? How do you manage your money without the internet? We're all used to online banking, etc. If you're in debt and you really, really need to keep an eye on your money, you've got no credit on your phone, you can't go online banking because you've got no electricity. I mean, these kind of things. So I think that's where we'll feel the pain, the people who, for whom winter really is going to be tough. It's 4 million people on prepayment meters, I think, reading the report from the Resolution Foundation this morning. That's a And going up. And if you're on dialysis machine or something at home and you can't afford the power, I mean, it doesn't bear thinking about it, really. That is pretty grim, yeah. You mentioned state pensions benefits. That's interesting. Any other additional points you think are going under the radar a little bit here that you want to flag to our attention? I mean, there's always that distinction between the public and the private sector, both in wages and in pensions. I mean, next April public sector pensioners will probably get 10% or whatever inflation turns out to be because it's uncapped CPI. Whereas many defined benefit pension schemes will be capped. The Pension Protection Fund won't pay out for pre-97 service. So some people will have their pensions frozen. So that might be quite contentious when it happens next April, I think. The impact of inflation is quite different on the retired population, depending on what sort of pensioner you are. One to watch then in that case. Obviously, New Prime Minister, a couple of years to a general election. Is this the defining theme of the next couple of years and the run up to that election, do you think? Cost of living isn't going away, I think. I mean, even if inflation is close to its peak, maybe. I'm still not entirely convinced. People will still be feeling the scars. And if they've built up debt, that's not going to disappear quickly. If they've used short-term coping mechanisms to make the household budget stretch a bit further by 0% credit cards that run out in 18 months' time or borrowing from friends and family or putting everything on Klarna and all the rest of it. These things will still be very much in people's minds when they cast their votes. So I think easing the squeeze before a general election is going to be a top political priority alongside sorting out the NHS and everything else. So it's a long shopping list. Absolutely. Well, Steve, thank you very much for your insights today. No doubt we'll want you back on the show very soon as things unfold. Hopefully with a cheerier set of yeah. topics. Hopefully with a slightly cheerier set of topics. We'll watch and wait in hope. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Great. So we're delighted to be joined by someone who spent a lot of time thinking about inflation and its impact on pension schemes. And that's our colleague and partner in LCP's actuarial practice, John Forsyth. John, welcome. Thanks very much, Dan. I'm very glad to be here and thanks for having me. Welcome, John. John and I actually work together quite closely on a number of different things at LCP, so I know the answer to this already. But John, why don't you tell us how your summer's been and what stuff you've been getting up to? I think, well, first of all, busy or busier than I expected at the start. And we'll come on to high inflation is one of the big reasons. But I guess I did manage one week off. But rather than relaxing in the sunshine, my wife and I did a, a walking holiday. We were in Nijmegen in the Netherlands where we did... It's kind of a big event where sort of 40,000 people go marching and marching for 50 kilometers a day for four days in a row. So I had some extremely sore feet at the end of that one and <laughs> didn't exactly help with the relaxing, but it's been good. Thanks very much. And I think that was slap bang in the middle of the heat wave that we saw across not just the UK, but Europe as well. <laughs> That's quite right. Yeah. All the more challenging. Why make it easy? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> that sounds great. There's something in 
like walking through an environment and the countryside, I always find it, you experience it differently, don't you think? Or is that maybe going a bit deep? No, no, absolutely. And I definitely got a good sense of the culture. And it was really fun because people were lining the streets. It's a big event and kind of cheering you on as you were walking through the villages. I mean, if you're going to do that kind of length of walk anywhere, Netherlands is the place to do it because obviously not a lot of hills. That's <laughs> the, uh, the one good bit. Ideal. Excellent. Okay, well, turning to the topic of the day then, inflation. So the Institute of Actuaries, I understand, has just issued a risk warning on inflation. So what are they saying and how are actuaries reacting to that, John? This is something the actuarial profession, the IFOA, they issue from time to time. And the latest one is, as you say, on inflation. I guess we've all been thinking about inflation and the impact for ourselves and our clients for some time now. So I guess personal view is this was a bit late to the party from the IFOA, but I'll kind of Going through what it was talking about, it's really a lot of the things, as I say, that we've been discussing. So firstly, making sure that we as actuaries understand what it is that we are assuming, making sure we understand the uncertainty and the inherent uncertainty, especially at the moment in inflation and the different types of inflation and what they all mean. But then also feeding through into our client advice for where could it impact? What does it mean for, for example, member option terms? What does it mean for your hedging strategy? What does it mean for few other things as well. So it's really kind of bringing that to the profession's attention. Hopefully like to think that we've been on top of most of that all along and it's really just a helpful reminder and suggesting people nudging them a bit more in that direction. And John, could you just step through, I guess, some of the ways that higher inflation is impacting the work that we do? I suppose the areas that you just talked about are probably the key themes, but maybe just illustrate with an example why those factors are so important. No, absolutely. So I guess, I mean, starting with kind of understanding what it is that you're assuming, I mean, it sounds easy, assume what inflation will be in the future, but we all know it's a bit more complicated than that in the actuarial world always. And I guess the high inflation environment in particular, kind of very short term high inflation, but then over the longer term, reducing to more normal levels, if you like, is putting a bit of pressure on certain actuarial models and ways that we're thinking about things. And pension schemes, for example, lots of them have lots of different benefits. Some members have pension increases that are capped. Some members have underpins to certain increases that they have. And it's all kind of thinking through, well, what does very high inflation in the short term mean for kind of assumptions that we've previously made around when certain underpins are going to bite? What does it mean for the way that we set our kind of future looking assumptions? How do we marry up kind of past inflation with future looking inflation when we're thinking about total inflation over the lifetime of the pension scheme member. So it's been a lot of different things to think through. And this is what we've been kind of concentrating for a while now internally. So I mean, one of my roles in LCP is sitting on our funding and factors group, as you'll know, Mary, which is responsible for giving guidance to our actuaries on, as it sounds like, funding and factors matters. And high (laughs) inflation has very much been high, if not top of the agenda for many months now, and thinking through lots of these different things. I mentioned the retirement terms as well. This is another area we've been having to think quite carefully. I guess it's just really making sure that clients understand what member option terms are doing and that they're appropriate in the current environment. And I think the key one that's mentioned in that IFOA risk alert is around retirement terms and in particular early retirement terms. So I guess for listeners who are less familiar with this, members in DB pension schemes can typically elect to retire a bit earlier than their normal retirement age, but obviously pension then gets adjusted to account for the fact it's going to be paid for a longer period. And we call that adjustment an early retirement factor. And because of the way kind of statutory revaluation of pensions works, you have a situation whereby the current high inflation over the year to September 22 doesn't actually get reflected in members' pension calculations until the 1st of January next year. 
and so it's thinking through well if members are retiring now and that isn't being reflected do you need to adjust the factors to account for that otherwise are members losing out on that kind of fair value element we've been kind of thinking through those things with all of our clients and looking at what's appropriate obviously not an easy question when we still don't actually know for sure what september inflation will be and indeed what inflation will be going forward but doing our best as always no and i suppose there's a few things to sort of i guess unpick from that one is the example you just gave where it sounds like if you strictly read the rules of the pension scheme you don't need to be giving that sort of level of increase so there's a bit of a decision there for the people looking after the pension scheme about whether they in on a discretionary basis do something slightly different to make it more fair to members and then I suppose the key bit from your first point you made is about how difficult it is to make assumptions about all of this stuff but of course once the actuary changes the assumption on the liability side of things as you did mention briefly John of course that then might mean that your assets are invested in a way that doesn't look like it mirrors what the liabilities are supposed to do. So you end up thinking about if I've got assets and their pure purpose is to match what liabilities do, suddenly the view of what the liabilities are has changed. And of course, that isn't necessarily reflected on the asset side unless you take some action. Yeah, absolutely. And you'll obviously both know, seen a lot of clients kind of rebalancing hedging portfolios to allow for obviously high inflation, but also once it's been thought through on the liability side, what is it that they're trying to hedge? And understanding that is obviously absolutely key. There's giving members fair value. There's also the idea of discretionary benefits, which has also been high on, I think, a lot of agendas and the kind of idea of paying kind of extra increases to pensioners in payment given the cost of living crisis has also been something lots of trustee boards we've been considering. Fair to say, actually, on that one, I find quite surprising. I think almost everyone's considered it that I've worked with, but actually so far, a relatively small proportion have actually granted a full or a discretionary increase to protect members against some of this higher inflation given pension increases are typically capped. So that might change there once we know actual September inflation. And obviously, we await and see what the new PM will do in terms of protection for not just pension scheme members, but for everyone against the cost of living crisis in the near term. You mentioned September inflation. That's obviously a quite an important one for how pensions are set generally. But it also goes to the point you're making that one of the issues that's been thrown up, we've all been grappling with, is the different delays and lags and different monthly inflation numbers that are much more important than others, September being one. Do you just want to talk to that just super quick, why September matters and then how some of these lags can kind of create these little issues? So September matters for many pension schemes, but I would say most in terms of each year pensions are increased to reflect inflation, to give members some inflation protection. Typically, the September inflation is used as the reference month. So you might grant increases on the 1st of January or on the 1st of April, but they will be based on the inflation over the year to the previous September. And so that really does feed through into the increases that pension scheme members are going to be getting in the coming months. And so, as you say, is absolutely key. And I guess, as I already alluded to, I mean, right now we're in a position where we effectively know 11 out of 12 months of the year to September's inflation. But it's all about thinking through how do we estimate what that is going to be? We know kind of certain gilt prices, we can look at the market, but we don't obviously have monthly gilt indices or know exactly when gilts are kind of, there are no gilts, I suppose, that are coming up for maturity in the next month. So we can't exactly infer from the market what short-term inflation will be. So we always have to make some assumptions and then deciding how you marry up that past inflation with that future inflation and what it overall means for benefits is very much at the core of, well, the uncertainty and the things we've been thinking through, I suppose, over the past few months. It's easier now, obviously, 11 out of 12 is a lot easier than when we only knew eight out of 12 and we were really having to kind of make some heroic assumptions about what inflation might be. True. 
and in an environment where it kept surprising on the upside. <laughs> Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. So, John, what advice would you give at the moment for anyone who's involved in running a pension scheme, just to kind of summarise your points? Really, it all comes back to understanding that there is this inherent uncertainty and it is important, as you've said, Dan, to make sure that things are joined up. So do get your advisors talking to each other on the liability side versus on the investment side and more widely. Really important to know how it's all joining up and also to just keep things under review because, as you've said, Mary, it just does keep changing and it has been surprising us on the upside for some time now and could continue to do so. Absolutely. Thanks, John. That's been great, John. Thanks Thank so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Great. So some really interesting conversations there with our colleagues. Mary, what are some of the reflections that you're taking away from those little conversations? My first overriding takeaway is there is a lot of uncertainty. I think it's pretty clear in all aspects of the conversations that we've had, whether it's to do with individuals, government policy, actuarial assumptions as well. Clearly a very difficult situation and not clear that it's about to get easier for many people. So lots of issues to sort of work through there. We obviously have both Steve and John mentioning that gap between when inflation is measured for certain increases, pensions related, that sort of thing, and when those increases actually come through. So that's sort of one to watch. And particularly, it feels like the run into next April will be an interesting one to watch out for. Exactly. The September inflation number will be important, but it won't get applied to next April. So there's a period through to next April where state pension benefits, any pensions that are inflation linked are not going to really receive that. And like Steve says, normal times, you don't even think about that. It just comes out in the wash. It's fine. It'll be a little bit, you may get about next year, but that's just a massive thing this year. Absolutely. And we're exactly not in normal times. And I don't want to use that word that we used for the last two years about how different the time is that we're in at the moment. But I think it really does. We've spoken to three people. We've spoken to lots of colleagues, of course, across the whole year, across the summer, lots of people in industry. And it's striking how few people have actually provided advice and been in the business world through these sorts of times in the past. So I think that came out fairly clearly in our conversations and is obviously at front of mind for us at the moment. Reflecting on the conversations, do you think the scale of what's potentially coming in the winter is still being a bit underappreciated, even though it's kind of a huge news item? Clearly, the cost of living crisis has been on the front pages for ages, but do you think maybe it could still be underappreciated? Completely, I do. And I think, I mean, I asked Steve the question about seasonality, and I do think that some of the impacts, it's similar to this time last year, actually, when we were saying, well, you know, we've had an all right summer and COVID wasn't really around too much. And we were all sort of feeling like things were opening up. And then, of course, Omicron was probably announced not far off a year ago. And I do think that there is the winter effect is probably not being fully appreciated. The impact that it will have on the way people end up having to live their lives. I think that some of the comments from Steve were obviously particularly concerning in terms of people who have their energy on meters and the impact that that could have for them. Personally, I do think it's still being underappreciated. There's no way of getting around that, is there? There's definitely some bad news there. I suppose one positive angle coming from the conversation with Heidi was that employment is still pretty high. Lots of people are actually employed. Clearly, the issues with inflation are going to stretch well into the workforce, even to quite high income levels. But that puts the employer as one potential additional pillar of some potential support. And there's clearly some employers trying to figure out what they can do. Heidi mentioning kind of some of the employee flex bend schemes that are out there as being a pillar of support. Obviously, it's not going to change the world, but something that's there as well as government and the individual, which is yeah, maybe um, a slightly positive spin on it. Absolutely. I suppose the fact that you've got those three pillars, one of which is the employer does put the onus back on the government to make sure the employers are being supported how they need to be, which obviously was something that Steve touched on as well. 
moving a bit closer to home then, obviously, John reflected on the sort of the actuary's perspective on it, the risk alert coming from the profession, maybe a little bit late. A lot of us, I guess, already kind of working along those lines, I think, and, and working on that basis. What did you take away from John's segment? Uncertainty, uncertainty, uncertainty. I think it's just difficult to give advice through these times. It's difficult to make decisions through these times. And I think, I suppose, one of the real takeaways for me from John was just understanding where your position actually is. So that might be not just taking a report for its word, but investigating your scheme's position, making sure you know what the actual situation is on pensions increases and how that interacts with inflation and all of those sorts of things. So understanding your position, tracking it accurately. Forget forecast, it's all about now cast. I'm not saying that a little bit flippantly, but I think it's really true, really kicking the tires on the position. We've seen it with some models and things, really asking the right questions of that position. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about how the one-year rate is being in what reference months are being used just to really kick the tires on the current position? Because, yeah, I guess we all know it's an uncertain time, but one thing you hopefully can know is where you are <laughs> with a decent degree of conviction there. Absolutely. Investment markets, should we talk a bit about what we're seeing in markets? Well, exactly. Reflecting a little bit how to cover this, haven't we? Because it's interesting how to reflect as played into investment markets. But I suppose some of my reflections has been that very high level, investment markets have always really expected inflation to fall back down pretty quickly. When you look at implied inflation for this whole period of time, okay, yes, the one year kind of shot up, but really below that, they've always expected it to go back down. So looking at the kind of longer term measures of implied inflation that we do, they haven't really moved that much. Some of them might even have gone down slightly sort of this year. So that's been, I guess, the weird thing. But then, of course, the thing that seems to have obviously affected markets much more is the interest rate rises that are necessary to deliver that lower inflation. So it's kind of this indirect impact on markets where, yes, there's an inflation spike. Markets think that's going to go away. So markets are not so much pricing for inflation, but they are pricing for a much higher interest rate environment. And that's what's driven a lot of what we're seeing. Absolutely. And I suppose we're talking about inflation, we're talking about interest rates, but which level of inflation, what country you're based in, of course, is quite relevant. We talked a bit in a couple of the segments around UK inflation being different to inflation in other parts of the world. And I think if you look at the US, for example, inflation hasn't spiked in the same way, albeit core inflation in the US isn't that far off UK. And it's core inflation that tends to stick around a bit longer. But of course, it's the, it's the Fed that's driving global stock markets. When we're talking about inflation, most investors we deal with are actually investing globally. So it's not so much the UK inflation situation that's affecting their investments. It's more the global inflation. This is a clear global developed market thing. So it's more the Fed expectations that are driving stock markets and those sort of things. UK expectations are obviously more relevant for things like gilts and your UK bonds because that's driving the interest rates there. And it is funny, I was reflecting with a colleague on the fact that the market's been wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong. And one sort of argument is, well, the market sort of follows in the UK expectations of inflation. Market follows, as I said earlier, potentially what Andrew Bailey says. Another potential angle on that is institutional knowledge within the investment market. So if you think about your very typical and stereotypical person who works in the investment industry, often on average, the career is shorter. That's either because they work crazy hours and or because they earn lots of money and don't need to stick around quite so long. So you end up with people with shorter careers and actually the inflation cycle itself is generally pretty long. We're talking at the moment about not having seen inflation like this since the 70s. Well, what proportion of the investment industry were operating and sort of adult and remembering exactly what the 70s felt like and able therefore to position themselves appropriately, probably 
very, very low proportion. So in a way, it's not that surprising that the market's not getting this right. And back to the point we just said, maybe that means we need to focus on the here and now. We need to make sure that we're aware of what we're doing. We're aware of what our exposures are. We can stress test and that sort of thing, of course. But trying to guess what the market's going to do when the market itself is not necessarily going to be rational in this environment is maybe a losing battle. I don't know. It's difficult, isn't it? Because it's obviously very easy to knock market pricing and sort of laugh almost at how terrible it's been for both interest rates and inflation. But it's, it's just all you have. And you end up going back to it because what else have you got? But I think it is a very good lesson that it's just not really a very good predictor at all. And you look at interest rates or inflation through this period as well. So you've got to be careful about it. Absolutely. What else have we seen? Pound, of course, getting weaker and weaker particularly painful if, like me, you're going to the US at the end of the month? That's not great, but it has actually been a benefit to most sterling investors, of course, hasn't it? Because if you're an investor, you mark your assets in pounds, but if they're in, actually held in dollars and you haven't hedged it, it's actually really helped. And that's been a big gap. It's really mattered. So I was looking at some stats recently. If you hold a global portfolio of equities on an unhedged basis, it's only down a few percent over the year. Whereas if you hold it in dollars, if you hold it hedged, down about 15 percent has been as much as 20 percent that's the sort of gap it's been been pretty huge so i've been around lots of tables where currency hedging has been debated at length everyone lands on a different position i think it's quite hard to take very strong clear views on it but whatever view you've taken it will have mattered a lot this year for those global assets 100 percent. credit spreads widening that's had obviously a big impact in terms of buying corporate bonds the return that you might expect on corporate bonds knock-on impact in the insurance markets that we see with pension schemes as well And I suppose just generally, I think we were sort of reflecting on the fact that for the last probably, well, it's probably the last decade, isn't it? There's been this search for yield. Where do you find yield? And actually, that search is kind of over if you now look at markets and expected returns. Exactly. Yeah. And much more corporate bonds now sort of yielding 4% or more. You might even call it, dare I say, a normalization of some of that environment. The surprising thing is just how quickly that's happened, I guess, isn't it? We were talking about before on our episodes, I think, earlier in the year, that the risk models were throwing out numbers for sort of 95% moves in interest rates. And we're just well through all of those, 95%, 99%, well more than what any risk model said could happen in the year. So we've sort of done an awful lot of normalization sort of very quickly and still sort of getting to grips with it. So quick fire, what should investors be looking at? Should we go through some of our thoughts on that? Yeah, as we can't really duck that one, no. can we? Just sort of like, <laughs> just throw out a load of kind of vague talking points and leave it at that. I suppose we've got to say what we're actually talking to clients about. So go on, get us started on that, Mary. What have you got? So this comes back a bit to the point that John mentioned that we talked about in John's segment. If you've got hedges in place, so if you're hedging inflation, for example, just be really careful about that. Make sure that you're tracking it properly with inflation surprising so much on the upside. But there's a very high chance that your inflation hedging isn't quite where you thought it was going to be. So particularly relevant for pension schemes, but I think any investor just thinking about hedging future inflation should just be careful about how you're doing that and how that's tracking. And on collateral, obviously, as well, like with derivatives, like as any time things move a lot, you've got to start focusing on collateral. Anyone who's involved in pension schemes will know full well that there's been a lot of that going on. That's kind of been a huge activity over the last really six months now, really, and carrying on in the last few weeks. But getting the collateral right on those derivatives is absolutely key. Absolutely. Rebalancing, that's a massive one for me. So if you've agreed what your central allocation should be, you're very likely not to be in line with that at the moment. Depending what you hold, the weird thing is you might be selling things that have gone down to buy things that have gone down by more. But economic theory still says you should be doing that because of the relative sort of performance of those two different assets. It's easy to sort of gloss over rebalancing, isn't it? But it gives you a good anchor for sensible decisions you should be taking. It's kind of hopefully an easy decision to make, even though you might be selling something that's gone down. 
hopefully everyone get their head around that's a good idea because you decided that was the strategy and yeah anytime things get shaken up big time like they have done you're seeing quite large overweights and sort of some growth asset allocations mainly so that's been an obvious one yeah you're right what's top of your list dan well my favorite one currency hedging of course <laughs> Love that. yeah Maybe sort of comes into your hedging point, but it has been a obviously a huge driver of returns. So it makes sense to evaluate where the hedges are there, what sort of levels you want. Wherever people land, it could be that you feel wherever you were before, you might feel a bit more is warranted in the future. Or you might be happy with a bit less. I mean, you can take any group of people in the investment industry. You'll have three different views on currency. I think that's just a given. A given up trying to get sort of agreement on where currencies are going to go. But I think trying to get hedging in a broadly sensible range is probably what you want to be thinking about. And then the other one that goes under the radar a little bit sometimes is just expected returns generally. I mean, sort of expected total returns, not kind of thinking into the gilts plus mindset that we're or sometimes in, but you think about the total return to gain for your investment. Those have shifted higher this year pretty radically for a balanced portfolio, an equity portfolio. They've really gone up by an awful lot. I don't think that's really being talked about loads. And I'm quite sure why people maybe has worked through the system yet. Things have happened so quickly that people haven't really haven't had a chance to react to that. But dare I say it, that's a bit of good news for investors in all of this. The fact that those better returns are a lot higher. Particularly, I suppose, investors that are adding new money to the market because you're adding exactly. new money at the point exactly. where there's a higher expected return. Absolutely. And I suppose just almost wrapping up from my perspective, a few of the points we've already made, and we've talked about this loads on the podcast before, but it's really difficult to make decisions right now in the moment when everything's crazy and there's cost of living crisis and your assets are changing every day and guilt yields are fluctuating hugely. Making those decisions ahead of time and then sticking to them is potentially the best way of investing with a clear head through this sort of stuff. I think I always come back to that no matter what the situation almost. Exactly. Having a framework, thinking about triggers, rebalancing, doing those sort of basics. And the thing I always come back to is that you've got talking heads all over the place calling about a recession, there's going to be a crash, all this, that and the other. And I was trying to say that investors don't actually need to predict the future. It's very natural to kind of want to gravitate to this some kind of great story about what's going to happen, whether that's positive or negative. Like we love people who can try and resolve all the complexity for us into a neat story. But you just don't need to be able to predict the future to be a good investor. It's kind of a little bit more basic than that. So being diversified, having a strategy, rebalancing to it, sticking to it, having a framework. So yeah, it's kind of obvious stuff maybe, but this is the times when it bears repeating, isn't it? To make sure it works. It's obvious because it should work and it might be obvious, but it's often forgotten, I think, in the moment. So there we go. There we have it. That was a bit of a whistle-stop tour, obviously. Lots and lots and lots of different angles to the issue just, I guess, speaks to the fact that this issue touches all aspects of our lives. I hope listeners took at least something from it. I hope you managed to sort of weave together some ideas across the different areas in your minds and help you think about inflation in a holistic way. Brilliant. Great. So we'll leave it there, shall we? Yeah, let's leave it there. Great to be back. I hope you enjoyed the first episode. Look forward to taking you with us on the journey for season four. Take care for now. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.